Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. For our scripture reading, we're going to be in Genesis 37. And for our reading, verses 3 and 4. This is God's word. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Our father, as we embark on this new study, we're excited to glean truths that you would have for us to know, that you would use to, by your Holy Spirit, change our hearts and our minds to transform us, that we would think and live differently as a result, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, 2020 has been an interesting year, hasn't it? (laughs) When we kicked off the new year, Way back in January, the pastor elders wanted to emphasize faithfulness as our area of focus as a church. Little did we know how important faithfulness would be in the months to come. We've just completed an exciting study on 1 Corinthians. We considered Paul's instruction to how we can be faithful to the Lord, both in how we live the Christian life, but also how we're faithful and how we operate as a church. Ben Lewis finished up last week in chapter 16 with Paul's final charge that despite the trend in our culture to be thoughtless, to be fearful, to be self-centered, instead faithful Christians are to be the opposite, vigilant, courageous, and loving. And if you missed that important message last week, please listen or watch online. Well, the pastors wanted to stay on this theme of faithfulness, but go into the Old Testament now for our next preaching series. And we would be hard-pressed to find a better example of faithfulness in the Hebrew Scriptures than in the life of Joseph. Not only is he in many ways a great example uh, of faithfulness just in his own obedience, but the story of his life teaches us about God's faithfulness to, to his people, So this will be our series for the fall, and it will take us right up to Christmas. Personally, and I know I'm not alone, the life of Joseph is one of my favorite narratives in the Bible. If I had the financial means, I would love to bankroll a Hollywood-caliber film on this story. I think it'd be phenomenal. The history of the 12 sons of Israel in this latter part of Genesis has it all in terms of great drama. You have what seems like an immature adolescent, maybe even a spoiled brat, who matures to become a competent leader in the most powerful nation of his time, a young man who is persecuted unfairly, then showing grace to his persecutors, a man rejected by his brothers but chosen by God to save them. We have God's providence weaved throughout the story, grievous sin, and beautiful repentance and reconciliation. Faithfulness to the Lord despite temptation. We have the 
the realistic and the optimistic. Not to mention the backstory of God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One of those promises to Abraham, remember, was that the nations would be blessed through his descendant or seed. And we witness a preliminary fulfillment of that and how God raises up Joseph to provide food for the nations during the famine. We see God moving the whole narrative forward toward the fulfillment of his promises. The big picture of how God's people get to Egypt. And how Judah becomes the one through whom the Messiah would come. The greatest descendant of Abraham. The one that would would bring ultimate blessing to the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Chuck Swindoll. Joseph's story is a finely wrought and self-contained novella describing in vivid detail the development of his character from charismatic and arrogant youth to compassionate man. Genesis reaches a melodramatic peak in these climactic last chapters, a riches-to-rags-to-riches tale, replete with every human passion, love and hate, ambition and glory, jealousy and fury, Tears of joy and grief are shed. Garments are rent in anguish. It is a gripping saga of treachery and deception, betrayal and forgiveness. Well, let's dive into this great history. I've divided our text this morning into three acts, and then we'll conclude with some further reflection for us today. The first act sort of sets the stage with the complexity of Israel's family dynamics. This is number one in your outline. Welcome to Dysfunction Junction, Jacob's family. Let's read in verse one together. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Stop there. Throughout Genesis, there is an important Hebrew word, toledot, that marks the key transition points in the book. You see the English rendering here in verse 2. These are the generations of, or you could translate it, these are the things or people that come from, in this case, Jacob. It occurs ten times in Genesis, each time introducing a new section. And this begins the last of these ten sections. These are the generations of Jacob. And the author shows us right away who the key person for this final section will be. Look at verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. In the story of Jacob's family, Joseph will dominate the story. Now, as I have entitled this first point, there is significant dysfunction in this family. Anytime you love one child more than the others, there's almost certainly going to be anger, bitterness, resentment, and hurt. Many families have serious problems even with when the favoritism of one child is just perceived 
and the parents are doing everything they can to treat everyone equally. Well, in the case of Jacob, he was very transparent. (laughs) He loved Joseph more than his other sons, and this created serious problems for his family. Remember, Jacob loved his wife, Rachel, and it wasn't his fault that he was cheated by Laban and tricked into marrying Leah first. And it certainly wasn't Leah's fault. But she likely lived a sad and lonely life. So Jacob had one wife he loved and another wife who was unloved. The two sons of Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel, the wife he loved, and who at this point in the story had also died after giving birth to to Benjamin. But Jacob also had six sons through his unloved wife, Leah. And to make things even more complex, he had four more sons through two different concubines. When Rachel and Leah were having something of a baby competition, they employed their respective slaves, Bilhah and Zilpah, to become Jacob's concubines. Okay, different time. This was a few years before women had the right to vote. Okay. Well, with all these children from different women, maybe it's no surprise that Jacob looked with favor on the sons of his favored wife, Rachel, not so much on the sons of his unloved wife or that of his concubines. And that fact wasn't lost on these boys. This made for a very dysfunctional situation. Jacob's household was not a happy family. Worsby says this, When you have in a home one father, four different mothers, and 12 sons, you have the ingredients for multiple problems. And as we'll see, that's an understatement. Jacob's favoritism was poisonous. But even before this story, Genesis makes clear Jacob is a flawed man. Not only was he a deceiver, he was a passive father. He was too passive to deal with what was occurring in the lives of his children. Earlier, Reuben, the firstborn, had sexual relations with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, the mother of two of Reuben's half-brothers. And Jacob, when he heard... What Reuben had done, it appears from the text he did nothing about it. Earlier, when his daughter Dinah had been raped in Shechem, he did nothing. Passive. As one commentator says, passive fathers tend to favor the child who's easiest to raise. Furthermore, favoritism is something Jacob was all too familiar with. He should have known better. Remember, he's already seen firsthand his mother's, Rebecca's favoritism for him and his father for Esau, and it tore the family apart, even, to, even threatened to destroy the promise. How many of us say, I'm never going to make the same mistake my parents make, yet aren't those frequently the exact things we're most prone to? Jacob falls into the same sin of favoring one child over the others, despite the horrible consequences of his own past. It doesn't make sense, but these kinds of things never make sense, do they? As Pascal wrote, the heart has its reasons which reason cannot know. Jacob favored the son of his favorite wife, and the consequences didn't matter. So we see right away in the Joseph story that his father's favoritism was destroying the family. Now let's walk through our text together. Verse 2. Last part, Joseph was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Now these are the brothers uh, who are sons of Jacob's concubines. When it says he was a boy with them, it means he was sort of a younger assistant. 
to these older brothers, and he was 17. Now, you know what I mean. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Waltke points out something interesting here with 17. Jacob spent 17 years with Joseph here at the beginning. He also spent 17 years with Joseph at the end in Egypt before he dies, indicative of the symmetry of God's providence in the entire story. 17-year bookends to his sovereign plan. This will be a key theme of this entire series. Despite the faults and the failures and the evil decisions that will follow, God is in complete control of what happens. Now, we're told here that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to their fathers. A number of childhood illustrations flood to my mind, but I'm not going to use any of them. Now, here's what we need to do, interpret things a little bit. What was Joseph's motivation and, and, and intent in doing this? Some commentators want to paint Joseph as basically perfect because as we will consider later, he is a type of Christ. That is to say, there are some things in his character and his experience that echo future characteristics and events in the life of Jesus. And that's true, and we'll talk about that. But Joseph is not Jesus. And I don't think it detracts from the story to see that Joseph isn't perfect. Based on what we see throughout his life, Joseph does have integrity. He's probably telling the truth about his brothers here. But the Hebrew word for this bad report that he brings back, in every other case in the scripture where this is used, while the report may be true, it is intentionally slanted to damage the subject. Okay? It's a report that's given with an agenda to paint a bad picture of who the story is about. Proverbs tells us the righteousness of drawing a veil over the transgressions of others. In other words, it's not virtuous to be a tattletale. So we cannot say for certain. It seems like Joseph was trying to get them in trouble. But it gets worse. Verse 3. Now Israel, remember that's God's other name for Jacob, Israel, Loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. When our kids were younger, we had these little devotionals that we would do as a family. And this particular book, I remember, had activities at the end of each devotional that would sort of illustrate the lesson of that particular scripture. And I remember the, uh, the, the activity for the Joseph story was taking a bunch of candy and dividing it between your kids and then giving one child twice as much candy. And then notice the reaction. So we had two young girls, and, and my son was still kind of the baby. So he was sort of too young to know what was going on. And I think, in hindsight, too young for the girls to consider a peer as it, as it relates to this illustration. So when I put the piles of candy before each of them, I gave my son twice as much. And then I asked the girls what they thought. And they didn't really have a response. And I thought, well, this illustration is not working like I thought it would. Well, maybe he's still kind of the baby in their mind, so it doesn't register. So I said, oh, but wait a second, let me change it. And I gave one of my girls twice as much instead. And the other girl says, well, that's not fair. And it produced every kind of anger that the illustration was meant to produce. 
Well, Joseph wasn't a baby. He was 17, and he was certainly old enough for it to register with his brothers, and this robe didn't help. It just reinforced this favoritism. As Longman says, it was not so much the robe itself, but that it stood for the special love that their father had for their younger brother. The ESV says the robe was a robe of many colors following the King James and, of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that's a possible, maybe even probable reading. A multicolored or multi-patterned robe. But some scholars believe it was just a long robe or, or a long-sleeved robe. Something to mark him with honor. Now, here's what's significant about this robe. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the robe is associated with royalty. So, so this wasn't just a special gift like buying him a new car or something. Robes like this were given to the chosen successor for leadership of the clan or the family, the future leader of the household. Normally, it would be given to the firstborn, who would be Reuben in this case. So the, this robe marked Joseph out as Jacob's successor and leader of the family. With this robe, Jacob basically says, Joseph, wear this. You won't work like the others. You'll be in charge. You can imagine the resentment and hatred from his brothers are just escalating. Seeing Joseph parading around like he's leadership. As Walton says, this robe would mark, would mark off Joseph as management, not labor. I don't know if you remember, there was a TV commercial a uh, number of years ago. I think it was for Red Wing Boots. And these guys were working at a construction job site. And the guys with the Red Wing Boots were sit- sitting in a couch with their feet up. And they say to the guys who are slaving away, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Well, this robe was more than a metaphor. As Swindoll says, if someone shows up to, work, to the work site with this robe, he's not there to break a sweat. So this is more significant than mere favoritism. Jacob wants to pass on the ruling function to Joseph. And as we will see later in the story, while the future rule of Israel as a nation would go to Judah... Joseph will be the leader of Jacob's immediate family. And the rights of the firstborn are given to him later when we see uh, he gives Joseph the double portion of the blessing, adopting two of Joseph's sons as his own tribes. So Joseph does lead the family in the end. All of this symbolized in the robe, which of course just fans the flame of jealousy and bitterness. And it's so destructive. And as we'll see in due course, it turns deadly. Now, it's not Joseph's fault that he was given this robe. If he has any blame here, and I think he probably does, it's not something evil he's doing. It's basically immaturity. He's sort of tone deaf. We might say lacking emotional intelligence, parading around in the robe, maybe being a tattletale or a goody two-shoes. Again, no need to view him as perfect. But to his brothers, he was an arrogant brat, and they hated him. And as a result, verse 4, they could not speak peacefully to him. That's the word shalom in the Hebrew. There's no shalom between them. We considered the Greek uh, Irene in the the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, I think uh, Alex said, undisturbed well-being. This family didn't have that. There's no peace in Jacob's family, and it gets worse. Number two in your outline, I dreamed a dream. 
I promise I won't sing any of these uh, points today. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, the narrator doesn't say this explicitly, but throughout Genesis, dreams recorded in the book are revelations from God. But unlike the dreams of other people that Joseph will interpret later in the story, no interpretations needed for this dream. His brothers didn't say, hey, Joseph, that's such an obscure dream, the sheaves of of grain. I mean, I wonder if it means anything. I'm lost in the layers of allegory. I mean, the metaphor's too complex. Can you please help us understand if there's any deeper meaning? No. They knew exactly what Joseph was saying when he told them that their sheaves would gather around and bow down to his sheaf. When you add this dream to the robe, which, remember, represented leadership over them, it's a bit too much for them to stomach, in addition to his tattling. Again, no reason to think Joseph was perfect. This is true. This rule and reign will ultimately happen, but the manner in which this is conveyed seems at best immature. And many scholars note Joseph is either insensitive, naive, or both. Broadcasting the dream the way he does just fans the flame of his brother's hatred. And again, it gets worse. Look at number three. Dream another dream. Verse nine. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. It's interesting. Even with Jacob's favoritism and bestowing upon Joseph this royal-like honor with this robe, even he's insulted by this dream. I mean... I'll pass the leadership of my family over to you, but that's when my days are over. I mean, I'm not going to bow down to you. Again, no interpretation needed. The 11 stars are clearly Joseph's 11 brothers, and the sun and moon are Jacob and Joseph's mother. Now, his mother Rachel, as I mentioned, is already dead. So some believe This refers to Rachel's servant, Bilhah, who was sort of the surrogate mother to Joseph after Rachel died. That's possible. But I think Walton makes a good case that the dream does, in fact, refer to his mother, Rachel. It indicates the message of the dream is not just suggesting that Joseph will be first among his brothers, in which case it would be similar to other blessings, where one brother is chosen over the other, but rather... That Joseph rises to prominence in the entire ancestral line, superseding his parents in significance, which is what we see, don't we, in the rest of Genesis. This would justify the inclusion of family members living or dead. 
Now, these dreams of everyone bowing to him continue to fuel the already highly combustible hatred that the brothers have for him. But although Jacob rebukes Joseph, the author tells us something interesting at the end of verse 11, doesn't he? He says that Jacob kept the saying in mind. Okay, Jacob has seen throughout his life how God works. And and although here at the outset, Jacob may not like the implications of Joseph's dream for him. I mean, I'm still the man here. Okay, it's not yet time to talk about Joseph being the man, especially this kind of man to which I'm bowing down. Nevertheless, it triggers something that makes him consider it further and keep it in mind. He knows how God has communicated through dreams in the past. Jacob has already had two dreams of his own from God. Remember the, the stairway to heaven? And then second, the dream of the sheep in, in, Jake, in Laban's flock. In both cases indicative of blessing from the Lord. Jacob had come to know something of God's ways and God's words. When he heard his father Isaac's blessing of him earlier in chapter 27, his own father told Jacob, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. So Jacob's even heard this kind of language before in terms of blessing and promise. So while initially chafed by the unexpected revelation, He keeps the matter in mind, because in his experience, this sounds like something the Lord would do. Now, in our remaining time, what are some things we can apply to how we think or live differently in light of our passage today? Life is but a dream. Number four in your outline. I have two principles to consider for us. First... Letter A, God's infallible plan involves fallible people. As we consider these great men of the faith, the patriarchs, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and here Jacob, deeply flawed men, aren't they? Almost on every page there's examples of cringeworthy behavior. Yet God uses them, doesn't he? He delights in doing it this way. Because as we see throughout Genesis, indeed throughout the scripture, including the story of Joseph, he gets all the glory. Even through their flaws and outright sins, God works out his plan to perfection. Consider Jacob's overt favoritism. This is really a warning to parents. And it's a very easy trap that any parent can fall into. Listen to Tremper Longman. Truth be told, some children are easier and more pleasant than others. The temptation is to try to correct the behavior of the difficult child by heaping praise on the good one and using his or her behavior as a standard for the unfavored child to emulate. The Jacob narrative captures the typical results of such favoritism. It does not make things better, but much worse. It gives the favored child a puffed-up sense of themselves, like Joseph in his presentation of the dreams, while it fuels anger on the unfavored child toward the family as a whole. That's great wisdom. So like his father and like his grandfather, Jacob has many flaws. Consider Jacob's son, Judah, the one from whom the Messiah would come, a spiritual dud. A couple of weeks from now, we read that he sleeps with a prostitute. It's almost unbelievable. Like, God, are are these really the people that you've chosen to execute your plan? Yet as we will see, 
God is moving, isn't he? He's advancing the story of his promises to his people. Even in the midst of the incompetence, the unfaithfulness, and outright wickedness at times of his imperfect agents, fallible people. John Walton says, God is determined to fulfill the covenant blessings despite the character flaws of his chosen family. And while there's so much to to admire about Joseph later in his life, no one including him looks great here at the beginning. Ian Proven says this, no one comes out of the opening section of the story very well. Jacob creates an unhealthy environment in the family to begin with. Joseph pours fuel on the flames and the brothers are a murderous bunch, as we'll see next week. Consider this important truth. Every person who's ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, is a mixed package. Everyone has flaws. That's what makes Jesus so beautiful. Now, in these flawed people, there are usually things we can admire and aspire to, but there are also failings that we need to be honest about and not emulate, but rather condemn. Just from a secular perspective today, in our society right now, we need a healthy understanding of this tension. Otherwise, every historical figure in America will be canceled, and there's no one left. But this is far more important to Christians with regard to church history. We need to be careful when we consider our heroes in the faith. We need to be honest about their weaknesses and not lionize people or get defensive when their actions are legitimately criticized. Because here's the deal. The real hero is God himself. That's always been the case. You see it in the lives of the patriarchs here in in Jacob's favoritism. God's the one behind the scenes weaving even our mistakes and sinful actions into his invisible purposes and sovereign plan, which is infallible. I think of Martin Luther, whom God used to literally change the course of church history and rescue the gospel from the clutches of obscurity. So much to be thankful for. Yet Luther had many failings, anti-Semitism, and certain character issues that make you cringe. I think of George Whitfield, possibly the greatest preacher and evangelist since the Apostles. Countless people coming to Christ through his ministry. There's no debate he was a horrible husband to his wife Elizabeth. His marriage was an absolute disaster because he basically neglected her. She lived a miserable, lonely life. Not a godly husband. And while his contemporary, John Wesley, denounced slavery, though Wesley had issues of his own, but he denounced slavery, rightly calling it the sum of all villainies, Whitfield not only disagreed with him, but advocated strongly in favor, even at times twisting the scripture to justify expanding African slavery, a huge black eye on his legacy. We shouldn't ignore that. We can rightly say how horribly wrong he was in certain areas, and at the same time, rightly affirm that God sovereignly used him for his purposes because that's what God does. He uses fallible people to execute his infallible plan to show that it's all of grace and that he gets all the glory. You know who usually has a good understanding of this principle in my experience are godly parents. They understand 
There's so much grace from God involved when a child turns out well. Anytime I'm impressed with someone and I have the opportunity to meet their parents and just pass on my admiration and thanks for their, how they raised their child, almost without exception, the parents will say something like this, oh, by the grace of God. Because if you've ever been a parent and you're honest, you know how many things you've done wrong. And while there are certainly biblical principles the Lord gives parents to do our job, praise God, even that's of grace, though, that we have those principles. Only by his grace and sovereign purpose that any plan succeeds. We just considered in 1 Corinthians, what do we have that we did not receive from God? Nothing. There's only one infallible plan executor, and it is God himself. We will see that in the story of Jacob and his family, as God sovereignly weaves not only blatant parenting mistakes, but outright evil of some of the actors in this drama, all to execute his plan perfectly, to advance the fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham. Romans 8, 28, you know it well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to this great summary from Warren Wiersbe. Genesis 37 unfolds the destructive dynamics of a family that knew the true and living God and yet sinned against him and each other by what they said and did. The presence of Joseph in the home didn't create problems so much as reveal them. Consider the destructive forces at work in this family, forces that God in his grace overruled for their good. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. All right, finally, letter B in your outline. Read the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind. This is sort of a broad application point, not just for this passage today, but really for our entire series as we embark on this study. And really, anytime you read the, and study the Old Testament, we need the Old Testament. Jesus and the apostles tell us it was written for our instruction, written for the instruction of new covenant believers. This is the only Bible Jesus ever had. Jesus said the words of the Old Testament are unbroken. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We just studied Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth over the last few months. The Old Testament is the only Bible they had. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was primarily, if not exclusively, talking about the Old Testament. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness for followers of Jesus, that you might be equipped for every good work. What a comprehensive statement. I mean, do you want to be equipped for every good work? You need the Old Testament. Now, we read it differently now that Jesus has come. Jesus did not say on the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law, but to leave it the way it is. No. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We read the law and the prophets differently now through Jesus. He's the goal of the law, the fulfillment to which the Old Testament is driving. 
So we never want to read the Old Testament the same way a modern-day Jewish rabbi would read it, for instance. We read it through the fulfillment of Jesus. Scholar Jason Derushi talks about reading the Old Testament through the light and lens of Jesus. First, we need his light. We need the Holy Spirit to even understand it. If we're not born again, we'll never be able to discern spiritually its meaning. But second, we need, it, we need to read it through the lens of Jesus. This is something the Old Testament believers didn't have. They had light. Abraham saw Jesus' day and was glad. He had the light, but not the lens. He didn't have the answer key to know how the details and the fulfillments would play out. Jacob also knew something of the promise of Messiah. He had the light, but not the lens like we do. In the New Testament, we have the lens. Paul, Paul talks about the mystery revealed, kept secret for ages past. Once Paul had an understanding of who Jesus is and what he'd done on the cross, Paul never read his Old Testament the same way again because now he had the lens. Now when he read it, he saw Jesus all over the place. You see, you see this lens applied when you read the book of Acts. If you look through the book of Acts, the sermons in Acts are basically teachings on Old Testament texts read through the lens of Jesus. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. On the road to Emmaus, walking with the two men, Luke writes, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Everything in the Old Testament, one way or another, concerns Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean every verse or every chapter somehow there's a hidden puzzle where Jesus is there somewhere. No, it means the whole thing is read differently now. It's sort of like certain movies or television shows you may have seen where something key happens at the beginning of the story, but its meaning is hidden. And and it's not until the end of the story that you understand the significance of that event, and then the whole story changes Through that lens, whether it's Rosebud in Citizen Kane or more modern stories where the main character or characters actually die at the beginning of the story and that fact was concealed and then revealed at the very end they were actually dead the whole time and you go back and watch it again and you notice signs all over the place. You see the whole story differently. You have a new lens through which every scene is filtered. That's what happens to the Old Testament when you read it through the lens of Jesus. You filter everything through his life, death, resurrection, and mission. You view it all differently. So we should not read the story of Joseph, for instance, as if Jesus hasn't come. All the promises are yes in Christ. When we see deliverances, blessings through the descendants of Abraham, we have a foretaste of the work of Messiah. When we see patterns of how God operates through these stories and and see these patterns again in the life of Jesus, we're meant to recognize those things. They're, They're shadows of things and events, and Jesus is the embodiment or the substance of those shadows. The way God works throughout redemptive history points us to truths about Jesus and about our salvation. You notice this as Matthew in his gospel does this so often. He sees fulfillment all over the place, doesn't he? Thus is fulfilled, thus is fulfilled. Even even in historical events that aren't really prophecies, at least they don't seem to be, 
but they resemble something that happens with Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. He says, hey, here's another fulfillment. As if to say to his readers, do you recognize what's happening here? Doesn't this sound familiar? We're going to see a number of things as we go through the life of Joseph. Patterns and types that help clarify and anticipate the coming of Christ. Again, doesn't mean every word, every story is somehow symbolic or an allegory. It just means all of it ties together somehow to point to Christ. As Spurgeon said, if you look at an Old Testament text and start pulling on the thread, eventually you lead to Jesus. That's what I mean. So let's consider together as we go through this great drama over the next few months, a true story that's magnificent in its own right, but even more magnificent in that it will point us to God's unchanging character and the way he works and continues to work in redemptive history, ultimately in his son, Jesus. So as we consider Joseph this fall, let's consider a man beloved and chosen by his father, sent to his brothers who hated and rejected him, sold him for silver, a suffering servant who endured temptation, falsely accused and unjustly punished, enduring suffering and exile with two men condemned at his side, one to be saved, one to die, ultimately through his suffering was exalted as Lord over his brothers, turning to forgive those who betrayed him, elevated to a powerful throne, saving his people from death. As Worsby said, Joseph is one of the richest illustrations of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. The major difference, of course, is that Joseph was only reported to be dead. While Jesus Christ did give his life on the cross and was raised from the dead in order to save us. Do you know this Savior? Do you know this Lord to whom all scripture points? Embrace his life. Embrace his death. Embrace his resurrection. Turn from your unbelief and follow Jesus that you might be saved. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so grateful for the Old Testament and these stories and types and shadows and great truths we can glean as a church from your word. May you transform us this fall through this powerful story. For Jesus' sake, amen.